In Acts chapter 8, it tells us this. It tells us in verse 3, but Saul began to destroy the church. God, I thank you for these moments that you've given us together. I pray that in these moments that your sovereign will would be accomplished. And we commit this time to you. Have your will and your way. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen and amen. God has consistently demonstrated that he has the ability to transform any and every life. Let me say that again. God has consistently demonstrated that he has the ability to transform any and every life. You and I are never too far from his reach. And no one is exempt from the power of his grace. In 1997, Promise Keepers was at the height of its popularity. It was that year that they held the big event there on the Washington Mall. Even the most conservative estimates say there was over a million people who attended that event. And prior to that event, they were having regional gatherings to inform people and, and promote uh, the D.C. gathering. And among the numerous places they, they had these regional events was in Syracuse, New York at Syracuse University. And uh, in, in that particular event, it irritated uh, a woman by the name of Rosaria Champagne. Rosaria was an English professor and a professor of women's studies. She considered herself to be an unabashed liberal, and she was not too pleased that her university would allow these Bible thumpers to come and to spend time on her campus. In fact, so much so that she wrote a scathing article about her university's decision to do so and about promise keepers in general in the local newspaper. Rosario later wrote this. She said, the word Jesus stuck in my throat like an elephant tusk. No matter how hard I choked, I couldn't hack it out. Those who professed the name of Jesus commanded my pity and wrath. As a university professor, I tired of students who seemed to believe that knowing Jesus meant knowing little else. Christians in particular were bad readers. They always seized opportunities to insert a Bible verse into a conversation with the same point as a punctuation mark, to end it rather than deepen it. Stupid, pointless, menacing. That's what I thought of Christians and their God Jesus, who in paintings looked as powerful as a Breck shampoo commercial model. Needless to say, Rosaria Champagne, not a big fan of Christ and the community of believers. Mossad Hassan Yosef. He was first arrested at 10 years of age because he was throwing rocks at Israeli settlers. He came by this disposition really pretty naturally. You see, Yosef, or 
would later be known as Joseph. He was the son of one of the Hamas leaders in Palestine, and, and he grew up knowing that this is what you do. As a young boy, you, you push back. As a young man, you're involved in the conflict. You're a fighter. That's what you do. And at this point in the conflict, the conflict is such that the only option is destruction. The next chapter 8, Saul, it says that he begins to destroy the church. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't simply an issue of, of proving them wrong. It, it wasn't simply an issue of discrediting them. No, this had become profoundly personal. He gave approval to the, the stoning of Stephen. And it became his pattern to give murderous threats. Murderous threats is what Scripture says against Christ followers. It had reached that level with him, that, that degree of angst. When there's conflict, when you have conflict in your life, when there's conflict in an organization, when there's conflict in the church, there's five different levels of conflict. And, and the first level is this, that, there, that people are talking they're somewhat unsettled, but they don't even realize that it's conflict at that point. There's just kind of a, an awareness. It's the first level of conflict. And something just doesn't sit right with this. And, and when, we can, when we can talk that through and work that through at that first level, and that's a great victory. That's a great win. But oftentimes, that's not what happens. And, and so we go from just kind of this awareness, this uneasiness, to the second level of conflict. So first level of conflict, by the way, this isn't in your like fill in the blank notes, but this is good. You might want to write this down. So that, that first level of conflict is just kind of an uneasiness and awareness. The second level of conflict is disassociation. This is where we realize there's a problem and, and we want to distance ourselves. We don't want to be connected with anything and, and, and people are talking. Now nobody is Nobody is saying anything that they want to be quoted about, but they're beginning to talk. Oh, this isn't good. And in fact, there's some semblance of factions starting to form. The people who agree that it's not good, they're starting to talk together. The people that go, it's not that big of a deal, are starting to talk together. And the people that are going, I have no idea what these people are talking about are all talking together. Okay, and so you kind of have these three groups forming. You'll see this in a business, you'll see this in an organization, you'll see this in a family, you'll see it in a church. If you've been a part of church life for, and, and involved to any degree, you've seen this happen. You've seen where there's this uneasiness, something just doesn't seem right, but you're not quite sure what it is. And, and you don't really perceive that there's conflict, but you, you, you recognize that there's just kind of this unsettling. And, and then that goes from, from the unsettling to disassociation. People are talking. I hear them. People are talking. Something's not right. If the conflict isn't addressed and resolved at that point, it then goes to 
to stage three. And stage three is where it's about winning and losing. At that point, the arguments become very clear. The disagreements are precise. And it's not about finding a solution. It's about one side winning and the other side losing. If we don't find resolution at that point, it's not about winning and losing. Someone has to go. In a, in, in a household, that's when we start using the D word. In a business environment, that's where somebody is going to be fired. In the church, it's where there's conversation about church split or this church leader needs to be removed. At level five of conflict, it's not about solving a problem. It's not about winning and losing. It's not about somebody even being removed. It's, I want this person destroyed. Not only do I not want them involved in my life, not only do I not want them engaged in my day, I don't want them to be able to have any type of connection with anyone else ever. It's level five. If you ever find yourself in that, in that place in life in level five in conflict, it's horrific. Saul has reached this point. He has this degree of angst against the Christian church and against Christ. This dead person, prophet, whatever in Saul's mind that has created all of this problem for what Saul believes to be the truly godly. So it's not resolving an issue in these people's lives. It's not about his position being proven right and their position being proven wrong. It's not about them even being removed from Jerusalem to where they can no longer have influence. It's reached the point, it is the highest level of conflict. I want these people destroyed. He's approving them being executed. He's he's shouting out, he's communicating murderous threats about them. Experts in conflict resolution will tell you that when you hit level four of conflict, it's tough for relationship to be restored. When you reach level five, it's impossible. They will tell you as a pastor, if you're in a church and you reach level five in conflict and the people want you destroyed, you need to run away. Fast, as fast as your little legs will carry you. In business, the people that you're in business with, they want, they're looking for your destruction. Friend, you need to find a new line of work. It's not a good thing to go to work every day and people want to destroy you. They've hit the highest level of conflict here. And then, hi, my name is Saul. Yeah, uh, we know who you are. Yeah, um, so I was on the way to Damascus to where I could persecute people like you. But all along the way, um, like Jesus appeared to me 
in, I don't want to kill you anymore, I want to hang out with you. Can you imagine that moment? Yeah, um, Mr. Saul, can you, can you just hold on just, just for a moment? Hey, there's this guy, Saul, at the door. Uh, he says he wants to hang out. Don't let him in. There's no way that this could be legitimate. This is some sort of sick, twisted ploy that this Christian killer is using to try to get into our life, to try to get into our day. Because there's no way that guy could have a God experience. No one would have ever imagined Rosaria Champagne That lady cannot come to Christ. She wrote this. One ordinary day, I came to Jesus, open-handed and naked. In this war of worldviews, Jesus triumphed, and I was a broken mess. I love the way that she writes this. She says this, conversion for me was a train wreck. She was a passionate spokesperson for the alternative lifestyle and seemingly was happy living with her partner, raising dogs, and pursuing her passionately pursuing her liberal values. When God intervened in her life. You know what I find interesting is this, is God didn't intervene with judgment. God didn't intervene with rebuke. Here's what God did. God showered her with love and with grace. She says this, I didn't want to lose everything that I love, but the voice of God sang a sanguine love song into the rubble of my world. I weakly believe that if Jesus could conquer death, he, he could make right my world. She says, I drank tentatively at first, then passionately of the solace of the Holy Spirit. I rested in private peace, then in community, And now today, in the shelter of a covenant family where one calls me wife and many call me mother, I have not forgotten the blood Jesus surrendered for this life. Today, her name is Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. She's a wife, a mother. Interestingly enough, she's a pastor's wife. How's that for God taking you a long way? This, this person who, who railed against promise keepers and now connected in covenant relationship and ministry partnership. Mosab Hassan Yosef. He was born in Ramallah, about six miles north of Jerusalem. His father's name is Sheikh Hassan Yosef. He had spent 
many years in Israeli prisons. Mossab wasn't just arrested at age 10. He was arrested multiple times. As his father's eldest son, he was seen as his heir apparent and became an important part of the Hamas organization. But his doubts about Islam and his doubts about Hamas began forming when he realized Hamas's br brutality. And, and how much um, they use the lives of suffering civilians and children to achieve their goals. He was, he was arrested in 1996 by Israeli agents. And while in prison, he was shocked by their interrogation methods. Not by the intensity of them, but by the graciousness in them. He was shocked at how graciously they treated him as their captor. It made absolutely no sense to him. These are the enemy, and they treat me with compassion. They treat me with grace. They treat me with mercy. He later became a part of Shinviat. And in 1997, accepted Jesus Christ as a Savior and Lord. And today is one of the foremost authorities on issues of terrorism and how to effectively combat terrorism. I mean, he's an outspoken witness for the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. I want to say again, what I started with this morning, and that is this. God has consistently demonstrated that he can transform any life. That you and I are never too far from his reach, and no one is exempt from the power of his grace. It's important that you understand this because it should frame your world. It should influence your worldview it should be displayed in your disposition and it should be an integral part of every relationship that you have. I believe this is a powerfully important message. I believe it's a powerfully important message because here's what I find. Let me be very honest with you. Let me be, be very pointed with you. that most of us as Christians are not very gracious. In fact, we tend to be pretty mean. They say that the army of God is the only army that kills its own wounded. And it seems to me over and over again what God does is he overwhelms with love. In Acts chapter 9, it says this, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. 
And he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found anyone who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuted, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They, they heard the sound but didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but he went. When he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Now in Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. And the Lord called him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. And the Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Um, Lord, Ananias said, uh, I, I, I know who this man Saul of Tarsus is. God, let me explain to you why this is not such a good idea. I don't know if you've ever tried to explain to God how bad somebody in your life is. God, let me explain to you why I cannot reconcile with my husband. God, let me explain to you how I know that my wife is the spawn of Satan. God, let me explain to you how I am thoroughly convinced that my boss has totally and completely, utterly given himself over to the disposition of hell. I appreciate your thought, God, but that person is too far gone. Can't be done. Friend, God has consistently demonstrated that he can transform any life. You and I are never too far from his reach, and no one is exempt from the power of his grace. This is why the church has to be about what we're supposed to be about. This is the reason why we should be in the redemption business. Because God's ability to restore, God's ability to renew. I believe this message is important for three reasons. Number one, there are far too many, there are far too many even in this room today that you at some level have bought into the satanic lie that God cannot take care of the sin issue in your life. Somehow you have bought into this mistruth that your sin is so big that somehow it disqualifies you Oh, maybe you're convinced that, okay, I know that I can be saved from the fire of hell. I get that. Okay, I don't have to worry about hell. But knowing who I am and understanding what, what damaged goods I am, there's no way that God can use me. Two weeks before I came to Christ, 
as a 15-year-old kid, at about 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning, I was standing on the roof of McDonald's throwing green tomatoes at cars passing by. Managed to hit a squad car, which is not a good idea. A month before our, I committed my life to Christ, I had the keys to the Highland Potato Chip Factory in Davenport, Iowa. The manager of that plant had entrusted them to me. I was doing some work at his home, and I was using some, some materials that were there at the plant. And I let my friends come into the plant. And we stole a bunch of stuff out of all these trucks, these delivery trucks that delivered Slim Jims and that sort of stuff. Almost $1,000 worth of Slim Jims. That's a lot of Slim Jims. <laughs> They're refreshing. What can I say? And... Um, As a 15-year-old kid, I was, I was drunk more than I was sober. I am among the last people, had you known me as a teenager, I'm among the last people that you'd ever expect to be standing here today and speaking to you. Now, I have all the excuses losing a parent at a young age, having a step-parent come into my life who was a violent drunk and a child abuser, grew up in an environment that was not only not open to the gospel, but many times was openly hostile to the gospel. My grandmother held seances in her home, brought, bought drugs for her grandchildren. It was the world that I grew up in pretty far from where I find myself today. I stand before you as a classic example of the restorative power of Jesus Christ. Amen. Satan would love for you to believe that your sin somehow exempts you from the ability of God to use you. Wrong. wrong. Understand this, that God has the ability to use you because God has consistently been in the business of bringing transformation, this transformative work that he does. And the transformative work of God, it influences, it impacts, it shapes, or it should, three specific areas in our life. Number one is this, the transformative impact of Christ's love, it, it should transform our character. Here's what it says in Colossians chapter 3. It says this, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on earthly things. For you died. It's an interesting statement that Paul makes. For you died. Paul understands this because, because Paul lived this. Paul's not just talking theoretically. He's not just um, sharing philosophically. He understands the transformation that took place in his life that caused him to go from Saul, Christian killer, to Paul, champion for the kingdom of God. And because God does not change, 
His principles do not change, and his patterns do not change. The work that God did in Saul, it's the same work that he desires to do in both you and I. He says this in verse 7 of Colossians 3, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. I love this, but now. You used to do this, but now. It echoes what it tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 that says, if anyone be in Christ, they're a new creation. Paul, when he's, in, when he's instructing Timothy, he says this. Listen to this. He says, those who serve must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Listen to this. This is the part I love. Opponents must be gently instructed. Opponents must be gently instructed. Paul, Christian killer, you've got to be destroyed. Level five of conflict. Right? It's not enough to remove them. It's not enough to win. It's not enough to to find a solution. No, we're not interested in finding a solution. We're not interested in in winning. We're not interested in removing them. We want them destroyed. Now he says, whoa, wait a minute. When you find people that have opposition towards you, your response to them should be in a spirit of gentleness. See, it echoes what he says in, in Colossians chapter 3 when he makes a statement. He says, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger. I'll tell you, I, I walked up here this morning with two sermons. I, I had this sermon, which I prepared, and then woke up early this morning and wrote a message on anger. And I'm convinced of this. I'm convinced that it's a message that God has for this church at some point, some point soon. This issue of anger, you must rid yourselves as all such things as anger. We are far too angry people. You to rid yourself of that, of anger, of rage, of malice, of slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Your new self which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. Christ's love transforms our character. It changes our values. It should change the way that we look at ourselves. Because God sees you through a very different lens, friend. God sees you through this lens of transformative grace. He doesn't see the old man. He doesn't see the old person. He sees this new life. That's the reason why next Sunday morning we'll have folks that, 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 that are going to be baptized. If you've yet to be baptized by immersion in water or you've had some significant events in your life since you were baptized and really feel like you need to make that public profession again, it's not too late for you to sign up to be baptized next week. Water baptism is an important part of the Christian experience because it is a declaration of this transformative work that has taken place and is continuing to take place in our life. I'm not the man I was. I am a 
a new creation. And, and Christ's love should transform our character. You are not too far from his grace. It also, it should transform our connections. Paul goes on to write in Colossians chapter 3, he says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another and forgive whatever grievances you have against one another. Forgive just as Christ has forgiven you. The most important relationship that you have is that vertical relationship, the relationship between you and God. And Satan would love for you to be convinced that somehow the wrongs that you have done exempts you from God's grace. And so you cannot have a completely open relationship with God because somehow you have been scarred. See, friend, that's a lie that the enemy would love, you to be- love for you to believe. The work that Jesus Christ did on the cross is more than enough to completely redeem you from all sin and to reconcile you back to God. When you think about reconciliation in a, in, in, in a relationship, when there's reconciliation in relationship, for the most part, it's two people who have done wrong working out their things coming together. God doesn't need to be reconciled to you because God has done nothing wrong. But in the work that Christ did on the cross, God gives us this opportunity for reconciliation with him. He makes it right to where we can come before him blameless. Because, friend, if you weren't absolutely blameless, you could not have an audience with God. So recognize this, that your vertical relationship, the relationship between you and God, because of the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross, that relationship is right and it is whole. Now, whether or not you choose to operate in that is your choice. Because God demonstrated his love for you and that while you were yet a sinner, Jesus Christ died on the cross. God has already forgiven you of your sins. It's just a question of whether or not you will accept that gift of grace. There's nothing that you have to do to earn it. You certainly don't deserve it, but God has already expressed it and given it to you. So this idea that somehow you're not good enough, that the enemy would love for you to buy into, is absolutely wrong. That relationship is right. That's why we have to, since we've been raised with Christ, we have to set our heart on the things above and set our mind on the things above. It should transform our character, but it also, not just that vertical relationship, your horizontal relationship, the relationship that you have with others. And this is where, this is where a lot of us in this room, we get tripped up. We struggle in the issue of our relationships with others. Man, things between me and God are good. But between me and him, or me and her? Oh, pastor, you have no idea what they did to me. Therefore, as God's chosen people... Holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, 
humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another and forgive whatever. So many of us live our lives captive in a prison of our own making because we don't understand and therefore we don't appropriate this transformative work of God in our life. And we love God, but we hate people. It doesn't work. And here's my hope right now. My hope right now is that you don't feel condemnation, but my hope is this, is that no one in this room is exempt from what God is doing in this moment and that you would allow the searchlight of the Holy Spirit to search even the deepest, darkest recesses of your heart and mind to do a quick analysis of the relationships you have, even relationships that go back a long way. And that you'll allow the Holy Spirit to reveal to you those areas of bitterness and unforgiveness that you've been holding on to because you have determined that that person is not worthy of reconciliation. Oh, I don't have any issue against them. I just don't want to be around them. Wow. Can I tell you how often I hear that? How often I hear that from Christians. I don't have anything, I don't have any issue with them. Really. So if they walked into the room right now, you'd have no problem walking up and giving them a hug. Oh, I wouldn't say that. But I wouldn't punch them in the face. Isn't that enough? Peace is not an absence of conflict. An absence of conflict is a ceasefire. An absence of conflict is detente. That's not peace. And it's definitely not God's peace. Right? The world likes to define peace as an absence of conflict. Here's the reason why. Because the enemy loves to keep the tension high in your life. Peace. I'm, uh, I'm in the middle of having my pool resurfaced. It's been an adventure. It took a long time to get somebody out there even to give me a, a, a price on getting the pool resurfaced. And, and finally, I landed on somebody. Actually, um, a friend of a friend connected me with this pool company. And, and, um, and so we started the, the, the deal. It took them some, some time to get out there. And then uh, a couple weeks ago, they finally got out and, and they, they drained the pool and, and did the work that they needed to do on the pool to prepare it and then put the bond coat on. And then the next day, they came out to spray the gunite on the pool and re, redo it. Well, uh, in the middle of the process, their machine malfunctioned and I could just hear this machine, kagoom, kagoom, kagoom. And I'm, I'm inside and I'm going, that doesn't sound right. I, I don't know pool refinishing, but I know that's not a good sound. And, um, and the next thing I know, they're gone. My pool is half refinished. There's this huge mess in the yard and they're gone. And uh, my pool's not filling up with water. I, I don't know a whole lot, but I know that the pool is supposed to, the water's supposed to come back. No, it's just, it's okay. And um, so they, they came back this week. On Thursday, they cleaned everything out, prepared the pool again. Friday, they did the refinishing of the pool. And, um, but they left this big mess in the yard again. Grass dead, just horrible. And, um, and one of the workers, before he left, threw a cigarette in the bottom of my pool. And now this refinished pool, there's this brown spot in the bottom of the pool. Yeah. And... Then as the pool was filling up with water, we scrubbed the brown spot, got most of it up, but there, you can still see it. Um, but then my pool looks, it looks, it's spotted. And I don't know a whole lot about pools, but I know that 
it didn't look, even, even, in, its, even its, in its deteriorated condition before, it didn't look spotted like this. So a guy from the pool company came to clean up the mess yesterday, and I said, is this supposed to look like this? And he goes, uh, no. I said, well, what do I need to do? And he goes, it's not my problem. He said, you're going to have to call the company on Tuesday. And I said, uh, okay. So I texted the friend of a friend who made this arrangement. He came over. And he goes, oh, this isn't good. And, and he made this comment to me. He said, I cannot believe you're this calm about this. Yesterday was a good day. I'm not always that great about this. Okay? I have my moments where anger gets the best of me, and I can be a jerk. I have to apologize more often than I care to admit. But fortunately, yesterday was a good day. It was a great testimony to this, this, this guy. And he said, I, I, don't, I, I don't get it. I can't believe it. He goes, I'm, I'm, I think I'm much more angry about this than you are. I said, I, I, don't, want you to, I don't want you to mistake um, my, my lack of demonstrating anger for a lack of frustration. Three hundred and seventy-five times. Listen to this. Three hundred and seventy-five times it says in the Bible that God got angry. Wow. <laughs> okay, if God gets angry, don't you think you're going to get angry? And yet, in all the times that God has gotten angry, here's what he's always done. He's always offered an opportunity, a path, for reconciliation for his children. Because relationship is always the most important thing. In the body of Christ, we write too many people off. And all around you, you are going to, you're going to have interaction with people who think that they're too far from God's love. They're too far from God's grace. The very lie that the enemy tries to bring on you, to convince you, even if you're part of the Christian community, that somehow you're a second-class citizen. The enemy loves to convince the people around you that they, there's no opportunity for them to reconcile with God. Let me take it a step further. The enemy will work overtime to try to create tension between you and the people in your life that can either help you move forward in your faith or the people in your life whom your testimony is essential to them coming to faith. And so the transformative love of Christ, it should transform our character. It should also transform our connections. Because recognizing how God views us in this ministry of reconciliation that he has towards us, we should have that same approach towards others. I want you to imagine if God said this about you. Look, I got no issue with Bruce. You know, I'm not going to smite him. But you know what? He's been enough of a jerk. I don't need to spend time around him. 
Can you imagine God having that posture for you, towards you? Ah, you're not going to experience hell, but don't expect any of my blessings. Do you want that kind of a relationship with God? Does it sound right to you? Does it sound like that's the way that God approaches you? And yet, far too often, that's the way we, as professing Christians, respond to others. And it cheapens the grace of God. It's a horrible testimony. Can't have it. I've heard people say in, 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 in church, I've heard people say about people who left the church, I don't, I, I don't want those people to come back to our church. They left, they left us with this mess, good riddance. I mean, I don't have any problems with them, but I don't, I don't, I don't need them back here. Can I tell you, the hundreds and thousands and probably tens of thousands of de-churched people that are all across Orlando, many of them that were a part of this church at one time, come on home. See, we have to have a different posture towards this, friends. Ananias says this. He says, Lord, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he's come here with the authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. The Lord said to Ananias, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show how much he must suffer for my name. I think it's interesting that God said that to Ananias. Like, Ananias, it's okay for you to spend time with this guy. I've got plans for him. Ananias, he's going to have to suffer for some. Okay, then I'll go talk to him. I, just being honest, if I'm Ananias, I know this guy has persecuted my friends, potentially even in being, been involved in the death of some of my friends. And God, you want me to go talk to him? You want me to connect him to the body of Christ? I don't think so. God says, listen, Ananias, I've got this. Don't worry about this. And, and, and by the way, he's going to face some challenges along the way. He's going to face some, some persecution as well. Well, if he's going to face persecution, maybe it's not all that bad. It says that when he came to Jerusalem, when Saul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was the disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he told them, how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus and so Saul stayed with him. Listen, because of the example that Christ has given us, we have the understanding that we are in the reconciliation business. Here's what it says in 2 Corinthians 5. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Here's my prayer. My prayer is this. That the people that you will meet today for the first time, that you will see them through a God lens. That the people that you're doing life with on a regular basis, that you will begin to see them from a God lens. For the people who have been involved in your life to the degree that you carry relationship, emotional, or even physical scars. That you will begin to see them through a God lens.
Because this, this transformative work of Christ, it does a transformation in us and how we connect with God, but it's got to do a work in us in the way that we connect with others. It has to. It's time for you to be set free of that prison of guilt. It's also time for so many to be set free from that prison of unforgiveness. Because And with this I close. This transformative work of Christ, it it should change our character. It should change our connections because it changes, it it revolutionizes our commitments. Paul, sometime later in Acts 26, Paul stands before King Agrippa. King Agrippa, interesting dude. King Agrippa Agrippa was the last of the line of Herod. Um, He was was just a messed up guy, egomaniac. If if you read in Acts 26, you'll find this. It says that King Agrippa along with Bernice came and and they were there holding court. Uh, You might assume that Bernice is his wife. Bernice is not his wife. Bernice is his sister that he's involved in an incestuous relationship with. The guy is just messed up. And it's this messed up egomaniac that Paul is standing before. But God orchestrated this, not because Paul needed to stand before Agrippa, but because God loves Agrippa enough that he wants even this egomaniac who's having an illicit illicit relationship with his sister to hear of his mercy, grace, and love. See, that's what God does. Paul says this, In Acts 26, he says, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the order of the chief priest, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time, I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. Paul says, man, I was passionate about this. But then Jesus revealed himself to me. And I'm still passionate, but my passion has shifted. No longer is he out to destroy the church. He's become one of the leaders of the church. And an individual that God dramatically uses to influence millions upon millions in the history of time, over a billion people. This is what God does. This is what he wants to do in your life. This is what he wants to do in the life of of those around you who have damaged you. 
because of the destructive nature of sin in their life and need to be set free. And this is what God wants to do in the world around us. He wants to take a a radical feminist professor and turn her into a champion for the gospel. He wants to take a young man that comes from a long line of terrorists and turn him into a crusader of grace and love. He wants to take a a young boy who is messed up, angry with life, angry with God, Friend, as a 15-year-old, I was so angry with God because I, bl- I believed in God, but I blamed him for my father's death. I blamed him for bringing this violent man into my life, a drunk, child-abusing stepfather. I blamed him that in my father's death, my family lost all of our finances and we went from living financially comfortably to living in horrific poverty. I hated God and I hated people. But then there was God's grace. You're a great story. You are. You're a great story that that's waiting to happen. You just have to embrace the truth that number one, you're not damaged goods. That number two, that person, those people in your life, you gotta set them free. And then number three, we must let the world know and be committed to demonstrating the transformative love of Christ. Because God has consistently demonstrated that no one is beyond His grace. So God, I, I pray right now as we draw our time to a close. I pray.